Uh, We're going to be in Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50. So if you have a Bible, open up to it. If you don't, these folks will give you a Bible. All you need to do is just raise your hand, let them know you're there, and they'll give you one of these. You know, it was an interesting week being back in Maine. Uh, On the northeastern seaboard of the United States of America, uh, um, in the first and second great awakening in America, which had a uh, monumental impact on our founders uh, with a biblical worldview and, and things that they, they established in this constitutional republic. Uh, it was kind of the reform movement in these congregational churches. So you go into these little tiny hamlets uh, all around the Northeast, and in e- each of these hamlets, there's one beautiful church, and the, the citizens of that community would come to that church. And the churches were congregationalists in their form of government, and they were reformed in their theology. I won't go into that, but suffice it to say, they were Orthodox Christianity, and they were solid Bible-teaching churches. And these little hamlets had them up and down the the eastern seaboard, Um, and we were traveling to some of them, and these buildings were late 1700s, 1800s, beautiful buildings. And now as you you go through the northeastern sector uh, of, of the nation, uh, these little tiny hamlets, those churches are still there, but nobody attends. They're now what they call UCC, United Church of Christ, uh, and they're open and affirming, and the rainbow flag is out front, and nobody goes to the churches anymore uh, because there's no point, and it's the only church in town. And Ken Graves, who's the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Bangor, Maine, um, th- this, this fella is amazing. He's got uh, rehab houses, because when you remove God from the culture, culture implodes, and you got all these folks throughout the eastern seaboard who are addicted, and he's got these rehab houses that they're doing, and um, just doing a tremendous work. But what he does is he takes all of his ministers and his elders, and, and they have two services, and on one of the services, he sends them out. The second service, he sends them all out across the great state of Maine to go and preach in these little churches that are empty and start bringing the Word of God back into it, and they need the revenue, so they rent the church. Uh, the UCC rents it, and, and the churches are now having congregants come back in, and they're doing great work in and throughout uh, the eastern seaboard, and it's, it's powerful to witness. I was discouraged seeing them, and when he started to talk about that, I was blown away. Um, there is a renewal happening in that area of the country. One last thing, um, here in California, I don't know if you know this, but we have the second largest number of evangelical Christians of any state in the union. Uh, Texas has more. And yet the, the church in California is silent. Uh, we, we don't affect culture, especially politically. We, we tend to just want to attend church, have sunshine blown our way, and we really don't want to engage the culture in any way, shape, or form. And as we've been doing these renewal projects all over the country, trying to engage the evangelical community to step into the public square and, and to have this transformative power that God calls us to participate in, uh, we've, we've had great success all around the country, but we haven't had anyone wanting to invest in California. Californians want other states to invest in their state, but they don't want to invest in their own state. And so a budget was put together of $6 million to reach the state with eight renewal projects um, and, and uh, trying to motivate the body of Christ to engage in the public square. Uh, to date, one million of the six has been set up. So we have it covered from Orange County down to San Diego, and now we're looking from Orange County north. Uh, We want to do events in Fresno, uh, uh, San Jose. We want to do events uh, in Sacramento. We want to do one here locally. We have another one planned for Pasadena. So please keep that in prayer. We're very close to securing that. Um, And and this could be a monumental uh, uh, event. For for those of you who um, 
I mean, we're taxed on everything, but now they're going after what they call split roll property tax. They're going to go after commercial property and remove Proposition 13 on your, on your commercial property. 15,000 people, 15,000 citizens of the state of California, 15,000 citizens, relax, 15,000 citizens uh, in the state of California are responsible for 26% of the state's revenue. Okay? 40 plus thousand are responsible for 60% of the state's revenue. So if you mess with split roll property tax and you take away these, the property tax protection on the buildings, these folks will move. More people have left the state of California, came here during the Dust Bowl. They'll move and you'll implode the state. This is one of the most critical elections in the history of our state. Um, and, and, it, and I don't know if you know this, but they went forward with uh, AB 2943 on August 16th, um, which is the can't counsel someone out of same-sex attraction. They're going to win at the state level but lose at the federal level. We're grateful that they went forward with it in the fullness. They didn't uh, modify it at all, so it's easy to shoot down at the federal level. Um, but we are, we're, in a, we're in a critical season. And if you think the church is to be apathetic and silent, then you have no idea what the text is talking about. And, and somewhere along the line, we have abdicated our responsibility in culture. And so I, I'm, I'm not saying that about this fellowship. This fellowship is far from abdicating the responsibility. You folks, pound for pound, are remarkable. And let's just keep it up and set that example. And we're praying that uh, with these renewal projects up and down the state, we're going to be the prototype and a chance to show other churches how you do it. All right. So that's it. Everything's off my chest now, so let's get into it. We're going to take a look at Isaiah chapter 50. Uh, Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. This is is the suffering Savior. Uh, This is a messianic passage in Isaiah, a picture of Christ. You're going to see it as we read through it. It will be fulfilled uh, in the crucifixion and when Jesus went uh, to the Via Dolorosa, the way of pain. Um, and there you, you saw uh, when he went to the crucifixion on Good Friday. It's, much of it is covered uh, prophetically in a passage of scripture that was written hundreds of years. First of all, before crucifixion was ever invented. And secondly, before Christ would ever go to the cross. And it's almost... It's so clear in this. And you'll often hear preachers talk about what happened to Christ on the Via Dolorosa, how they pulled out his beard. You can't find that anywhere in the New Testament. It's not covered. But one of the reasons why the pastors say that is because of the passage we're about to read. Much of what occurred and happened to Christ uh, as he was being scourged and beaten is all listed here in Isaiah 50. And we're going to pick up at verse 4. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning, and he awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? 
Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Lord, there's a lot there, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would minister to all who are present and bring comfort. Lord, I pray that you would do a mighty work and touch every life in a profound way through the, the depths and the amazement of this passage. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves and avail ourselves to receive from you all that you have for us. We're grateful to call you our God, and we're so grateful that you have given us a hope even in the midst of trial and persecution. And so, Lord, thank you. Bless your people now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, have a seat. Please. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. Uh, This is one of those pictures that Isaiah is given from the Lord in the midst of the trial that the nation is going through. And just to refresh you, um, Hezekiah has been told that uh, his people will go into exile in 15 short years uh, for their rebellion and their rebellious ways. Uh, They're going to face all kinds of trial and persecution. And God is speaking comfort to them through the course of this as they're getting ready to reap what they've sown. But he's also giving them a hope and a future that even in the midst of the trials, if you look to the Lord, uh, God will strengthen you in the midst of those. And and as he he takes uh, his people through this prophetic utterance, uh, it's, it's to bring comfort to them. And, and I pray it does the same for all of us this morning. It did comfort God's people, and it's here to comfort us today. The Lord makes it very clear in this picture of the suffering servant, the Messiah. And he's brought before Pilate, as we know in the New Testament. And, he, and it says he opened his mouth, uh, not a word. He said, not a word. He was a lamb silent to the slaughter. But at times he would open his mouth when, when uh, the... the Those that would be persecuting him uh, would say that, uh, you know, what is truth? And, and and, And those that would question him, Christ would respond in such profound ways that it would cause them to ponder. Yeah, Jesus would say, you're right to say that I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. We would see Christ on the cross with his final statements, and one in particular, one Greek word uh, in Aramaic, it's almost similar, and Jesus would utter it. He, he would say this one word, but for us in the English language, it's three words, but he would use this word on the cross as his blood is being poured out and as his life is ebbing from his body. He would say tetelestai, and, and really a difficult word to utter when your mouth is dry from dehydration and blood loss. And so they would moisten his lips with a sop, and they'd put it on his tongue, and it would loosen his tongue for him to be able to say tetelestai, tetelestai. And you can almost utter that word yourself and see how your tongue would get stuck on the roof of your mouth trying to utter tetelestai. And it just simply means it is finished, paid in full. I came to die on a cross, and as we studied the text uh, earlier in the previous week, blood must be shed for the remission of sin. And your blood can't be shed for my sins because your blood courses with sin. And my blood can't be shed for your sin because my blood courses with sin. Only the holy blood of God, who was, who was fully man, fully God, who lived a sinless life, when he died on the cross, his blood could pay the penalty and cover the multitude of our sins. And so when he would cry, to tell us die, it is finished, paid in full. It's what they would, your mortgage is paid. A sign would go on the door, to tell us die, paid in full. It is finished. There's no more debt. 
I don't know about you, but that's probably some of the finest words I've ever heard in the English language because they were uttered on my behalf and on your behalf. It's what separates Christianity from every religion in the world. That we don't have to earn his favor. He gives it to us and we receive it by faith. And that is, that's a cleansing and a forgiveness. And, and as he would be contending with the world that wanted to destroy good, they wanted to crush the Savior. They didn't realize that they were all pawns in the work of God, that God was allowing his son. It wasn't nails that held him to the cross. He's God. Nails don't hold God. It was his love for you and I that he would die in our place, that his blood would be shed for us. And as he would come before these magistrates and these kings, the scripture says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned. He would respond to them. He would be able to quote to the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. He would be able to quote full passages of scripture and give insights that would would marvel all of them. Who is this man that speaks like this? We've never heard anyone so learned. And this is the depiction that Isaiah is giving for those who would find comfort in a time of trial. That I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He would bring hope to his disciples. Those who would, uh, 11 of the 12 would, would die. One in particular, well, all of them would die, but uh, a, a gruesome death. One in particular by his own hand. But the other 10 would die a martyr's death. Peter crucified upside down. Paul beheaded. We can go through this. Stephen was the first martyr. We can see the early church, the the blood of the martyrs shed all over the the known world, especially through Europe. And and they would be weary. And you would see the apostle John, who they tried to boil alive, and he would be the last living apostle. And there he was delivered from the island of Patmos. They would carry him on a stretcher as an elderly man in his 90s who had suffered greatly, and they would bring him into the church. And here, the last living apostle, the people would be silent. Children wouldn't be crying. Every noise would be muffled. They would wait to hear what this great apostle John, the last living apostle, would have to say. He'd lean up on the stretchers. They would hold him. He would turn to all the congregants, and he says, Little children love one another. Love one another. Love one another. And then they carry him out. This was the sons of Zebedee, the the sons of thunder. This is the one that would say, as he walked with Christ, let's call down lightning on them and destroy them. And now his heart has been changed as he's come to know the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah, as these words of Isaiah would, would come to fruition in his life. And now he's the apostle of love. You just read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You just read the, apost- the epistle of John, uh, the gospel of John, and, and it's inundated with love. Love one another. And here, this is the word to the weary, to those in season. And John of all had received it, and he understood this. Peter had received it, one who was scared to death and fearful, who had denied the Lord three times before the rooster crowed. You find him in the book of Acts, fearlessly standing in front of countless who would threaten his life. And, and at this point, he's no longer fearful of death. God had comforted him in a time of weariness because he'd given him that word in season. He said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. John 21 on the shores of Galilee as he had resurrected and he had spoken to Peter. But then the Lord says in verse four, he awakens me morning by morning. And it says in the book of Mark in Mark chapter two, I believe that Jesus would awake long before the sun would arise. He would go to a solitary place and there uh, confide with the father. He would pray. He would spend time, and his, his public life of power was a result of his private life of prayer. He communed with the Father. And here, he awakens me morning by morning. Have you ever had that where you ever said, Lord, I wish I, I want to pray more. Lord, I want to get into your word. Have you ever had that? And all of a sudden, boom, 4.30 in the morning, he wakes you up. 
You're like, I can't sleep. Hello? You asked him. But the sun's not even up yet. Exactly. You know, my daughter this morning, it was a very precious time. My daughter Natasha was out the door at 4.30. And she's driving to school. She's driving across country to, to Virginia to start her sophomore year of college. This is a girl I thought uh, that the, the coroner would be calling me and telling me to come pick up her body. And as we walked outside, everyone was asleep. I was awake. I walked with her out to her car and I said, sweetie, you know what's interesting about this day? I said, the last time you left the house, you had a junk-laden white jalopy filled with all your trashy treasures, and you were driving down to Oxnard to run from God in the, in the darkness at night. And here we're walking out to a brand new white vehicle, and the sun is about to rise, and you're going across country to fill your brain with the things of the Lord to serve mankind. Do you see how God redeems? She started to cry and so did I. That rhymes. I didn't mean it to. But we both just marveled at this. That God has this unbelievable way of awakening us in the morning and speaking to us. And then the scripture says, and this is really what, what transpired with Natasha. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. She's going back to front load her life so that she's equipped to reach into every vestige of culture. The wise restraints that make men free, you apply restraint towards evil in order to pursue excellence. That's education. You don't sit in front of an idiot box, uh, the, the window into hell in the corner of your living room as Pastor uh, uh, Dave Johnston always says, and I love that line. That's your television. It's the window into hell in the corner of your living room. Alpha waves. <laughs> Pick up a book. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Oh, the Bible's boring. So are you. <laughs> Read it. It transforms your life. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides the thoughts and the intents of your heart. It's the only book in the world where we don't read it. It reads us. Avail yourself to it. Grow in the knowledge of God and, and learn these things to affect culture. He awakens my ear to hear is the learned. And I love this. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. The Lord God has opened my ear. I was not rebellious and I did not turn away. This comes out of a passage. I believe it's in Exodus 21 and also Psalm 40. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges and he shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. He opens his ear. He pierces it. For those of you who have pierced ears because you think it's cool, this is way cooler. Really what the servant is saying is I'm no longer under obligation to serve you. I am under adoration that I want to be with you because you are such a merciful, gracious, and wonderful master. You have always cared for me and I willingly submit myself to you. This is a picture that he's opened my ear. 
This is exactly what the the suffering Messiah is declaring in relation to the Father. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. Father, if there be any way that this passed from me in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he knew what was awaiting him, he was God. He was aware of the Via Dolorosa. He was aware of the way of pain. He was aware of the betrayal of the disciples. He was aware of the lashes of the Romans. He was aware of the mocking upon the cross as he was crucified there naked. He was aware of the pain as they would pull out his beard and shred his back to hamburger meat. He was aware of all of it. And he said, but not my will, but thy will be done. I serve you. I yield in the midst of pain. I yield in the midst of suffering. I yield in the midst of persecution because you have a greater purpose. This life filled with pain, this life filled with struggles is not fruitless. There's something significant in everything you're enduring and endeavoring to do if it's given to God first and anything given to God first will never be lost. And so this, this servant understood that and said, I want to be in your kingdom. And you would see this in Psalm 40. And this is a, an interesting, uh, one author writes, he says, if after the six years of servitude, a servant wished to make a lifelong commitment to his master in light of the master's goodness and his blessings for the servant, he could through this ceremony, make a lifelong commitment to his master. This was a commitment, not motivated by debt or obligation, only love for the master. This is the picture that we see that Isaiah has written. And what's fascinating is this is a picture of Christ. He submits to the will of the Father, and God seeks that we would submit to the will of our Savior. We've been purchased with the blood of Christ. Our life is no longer ours. It's His. You don't, you don't shrink from challenge. You don't shrink from suffering. You, you do this, and you do it as unto His purposes, We're called to be more than conquerors. We're called into his kingdom. But I'll tell you, when you step into this world of obedience to Christ, especially in a state like California, you will suffer. You will suffer. And the days are coming where it's going to get harder. Look at verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. How do you endure that? I, I mean, there's some folks here who have a beard. I, I can't fathom pulling that out. And you're back, cat of nine tails. Need I go through the story? And I will. They seven strands of flat leather, glass or metal shards tied to the ends. They would dip it in water so the leather would stick to the back. The shards would dig in and you'd rip out the flesh. And then you do it again, rip out the flesh and do it again until the bones were exposed, the muscles were exposed, blood gushing everywhere. And this is what he declares. They would strike him and then they would spit on him. Humiliation, spitting on somebody. I've had it happen to me twice in my life. And every time they spit on me, I didn't want to respond as a Christian. I wanted them to pick up their teeth with their broken arm. But alas, I did not. Took everything I had. I remember watching this, this documentary on the plane. It was called um, King in the Wilderness, The Last Days of Martin Luther King. And contrasting him with Stokely Carmichael, who wanted violence for black rights, and then Martin Luther King Jr., Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., they, they, they take that out. They like to put the doctor, but they take out the reverend. And here's a man that depicted Christ, Stokely Carmichael. 
he, he, wanted, he wanted violence. And Martin, Dr. Martin, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, when he was going through Chicago, which he said was far more racist than anything he experienced in the South, when he was going through Chicago, a woman came up and spit on him and cussed at him. And he wiped the spit from his face as one of his assistants would declare in this documentary and looked at the woman. He said, you're far too pretty to act so ugly. She came back later and she said, I'm sorry. The strength of that man. The power of a man is is declared and, and the character of a man is revealed by the power he possesses that he doesn't use. When they spit on Christ, do you think he couldn't have stopped them? He's God. He killed 185,000 Assyrians with one angel. And they spit on him. And I think of Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. The amazing things he endured. They reviled him and they mocked him. In a world that was torn, 68, what an awful year. He was he was shot on the balcony of a hotel by a sniper rifle. What a coward. Bobby Kennedy was shot. My Lai Massacre, Vietnam War. It seemed as though America was just in flames. We think it's bad now. It's not bad. 68 was awful. And here, 50 years The nation still seems to be divided. But the scripture says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. You know what's fascinating is the nation is divided and we start to see the oppression of truth and the suppression of truth. And we start to see the caustic nature of of those who would call themselves anti-fascist but would act fascistly. And and I, I see all this and I think to myself, how do we respond Do you want your pound of flesh? Do you want them to pick up their teeth with their broken arm? Can you wipe the spit away and love them? Do you want to send back a caustic email? Do you want to forward that email that's filled with visceral hatred and anger? Please understand, I I am all in, in for contending for truth. I do that. But are people the enemy or the opportunity? And there are times where they are the enemy. But I still would like to see them come to know the Lord. And the Bible says, do good to those who spitefully use you. And it's a real check. I have never really understood this, these passages until I stepped out of the pulpit, into the political arena. People are mean in the political arena. In the church, they can be mean, but they hide. In politics, they're in your face. And yet, when you sit through countless public comments at a council meeting where they're directly attacking you, you have clergy attacking, clergy. And I sit there and I'm not allowed to say anything. And I've learned something. When I pray for them while they're speaking, I have no ability to hate them. It's gone. And the, the, the weirdest thing, I end up, Loving them. (laughs) Try it. 
It's amazing. Mark 15, 15, so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. You just read that, and you're having your morning devotion with your cup of tea or your coffee, and you go, oh, yes, after he had scourged him to be crucified. Let's read the next bit. Don't skip that. He didn't say to Telestai till after that beating. He still had to walk up the Via Dolorosa carrying the cross on that blood-stained back. You know why he did it? Because his face was set like a flint. Because he had you and me on his mind and his heart. He had work to do. None of it made sense. And everyone who said they loved him and abandoned him. He didn't have a friend in the world. He was a penny looking for change. He would even say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I gave my back to those who struck me. You see, he would, he would be tied down to that post and his back would be exposed and that cat of nine tails ripped the daylights out of him. And then you can see the splatter. And after they had exhausted themselves and Romans knew how to beat prisoners. But look what he says in verse 7. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. Why do you do what you do? If it's for you, your ego will be bruised. Ego is self-preservation. But there's only one place for ego in the body of Christ. I, ego, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I, ego, who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. For what? To will and to do of his good pleasure. In the midst of this... Can you still pick up your cross and go up the hill for the sake of others? This is a high and noble calling. In a world that doesn't make sense, you need to trust in a God who does. You don't know what the future holds, but trust in a God who holds the future. And this is that picture that Isaiah gives to the children of Israel and to his people today. God gives this to us. For the Lord God will help me. What trial are you going through? What is it that's been plaguing you? Look, is it that bad? Will the Lord God help you? Does it seem like God the Father is anywhere to be seen in that bloody mess? Why would God do that to his son? Why would he allow me to go through a trial? Why would he cause my family to be divided? Why? Why? Why would he he affect that we would lose two children? Why would my wife almost die? Why would my daughter run away? Why? I've, I've asked those questions in the midst of the trial. But it's no trial like that, trust me. And the comfort I've always received in the midst of the most devastating of trials has been to realize for the Lord God will help me. He always does. He always does. Even when you don't know it, he'll come. But he'll affect his purposes in the midst of the trial. He always does. 
Therefore, I've set my face like a flint. Now, when the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And may the other things that they blasphemously spoke against him. They would sucker punch him. His hands were tied behind his back, and they'd put a bag over his face, and they'd just punch him. You've seen those videos, someone walking down the street, and some derelict just cold cocks him. Knocks him out, killing him in some instances. You look at that and you think, they need, they need justice. They sucker punched him. And he still said to Telestai. They beat him until they could only worship him. They beat him. Tough trial. Then they struck him on the head with a reed, and then they spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. That's the account in the Gospels. Nowhere do we see that his beard was pulled out of his face in the Gospels, but everything else in this passage is very clearly depicted in the life of Christ. mocking him for the Lord God will help me in the midst of all this suffering humiliation and pain the Messiah has an unshakable confidence in the help of the Lord God meditate on that who is your strength does an election phase you Does a diagnosis phase you? Does a financial downturn phase you? Does your faith waver? Because God is calling to tell you. (laughs) That he is here to help you. And he's still calling. Some of you aren't listening. We good? Yeah? Whose is it? (laughs) Look at Luke 9. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face. In the Greek, it's very clear. Set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He just set his face like a flint. There are those times just too much it's everything you can do just to push yourself up I don't know if I can do this but I'm going to take one step and when I finish that I'm going to take another one and he's going to be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path and all I can see is the next step it's all I got oh wait I got one more and then I got another one and you were just going through this tunnel and you were You were dead set on finishing this race. I watched as my mom uh, held on to forgive people by her bedside. They're coming. Her words were gracious, thoughtful, forgiving. 
And she labored for every breath as her lungs had collapsed. It's worth it. Live this life in such a way that you don't die with any regrets. Endeavor to do it right. Live to serve others. Don't revel in your pain. Step into that of others. You're depressed because you've made it about you. I know because I've done that with me. When you step into other people's world, your depression lifts. God has made us relational. We're on this earth not for ourselves but for others. Serve. Step into that world to make a difference. And here you see this idea Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. I just, I like that. Set your face like a flint. Just, you know, an arrow that is chiseled out of flint, they set it. You don't want the head of, a, of an arrow wobbling, you want it to hit its target and be firm. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint. Despite knowing the agony and waiting him, the Messiah will have a steadfast determination to obey the Lord God and follow his way. His face will be set as hard as a flint and nothing will turn him aside. You know, the Apostle Paul said in the book of Acts, none of these things move me. I don't count my life dear to myself. None of these things move me. Think about our life before knowing the Lord. Everything moved us. You see a... Uh, an, an erotic picture and you're moved. You, you, you see a, a, a glass of alcohol and you're moved. You see a pill and you're moved. You, you don't have any control over it. You're moved by every whim. Everything moves you. And then Christ comes into your life and the strength of the Lord as you trust him and as you, you realize he is your help. And all of a sudden these things come at you that you could never say no to before and you're not even moved. I was sitting across from a brother who's gone through a difficult time and struggled with alcohol. And he just said, God has delivered me. I'm not saying that it's me. All I can tell you is somewhere along the line, he did something I could have never have done on my own. It doesn't move me anymore. None of these things move me. I'm set like a flint. I'm steadfast. God is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me, the scripture says. This is the Messiah's way of quoting Romans 8.31. I have it here for you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If it isn't clear enough in the passage that you can see in verse 8, he is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. He says it multiple times. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Here's the exciting thing, Christian. When you receive the Lord as your savior, you were justified. It's a beautiful term that simply means just as if I'd never sinned. The blood was shed for the remission of your sins. You received it by faith and he cleansed you of all unrighteousness, past, present, and future. So when the Lord looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees his son's righteousness imputed, put on your account. 
and you're justified, just as if you'd never sinned. You still have a memory. You knew, you know what you've done. You know what you did when you came in here. You know what you're doing right now, maybe. And the Bible says your adversary, the devil, is roaming about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's telling you right now, you are worthless. You're pathetic. Why would you even be in church? You hypocrite. By the way, a hypocrite is someone who knows the truth and deliberately keeps people away from the truth. A hypocrite isn't someone who sets a standard for themselves and fails to achieve it. That's called somebody who's striving. Christ described a hypocrite as someone who knows the truth and deliberately keeps people away from it in order to maintain their power. So you set a standard and you fail. But you aren't righteous because of what you've done. You're righteous because of what he's done. You are wanting to do good things, not to be saved, but because you are saved. Not out of obligation, but out of adoration. And so when you're trying to walk this Christian life and you fail and you take that drink of the thing you said, I swear to God, I'll never do. And you take the pill of the pills you said, I'll never do that again. And you do the same thing because that sin that easily besets you. And the enemy comes in who is telling you, you need some me time. You need some me time. You're working too hard. You're doing this Christian thing too hard. And you take a little bit. And then what happens? He's the accuser of the brethren. You're pathetic. I can't believe you did that. You fell for it. You stupid idiot. You shouldn't even be in church. You're And the Bible says on your way to the judge, on your way to the judge, agree with your adversary. Who's the adversary? The devil. And the devil's telling you all these things. You did this. You did this. You did this. Just turn to him and go, I did. I did. Not happy about it. And everything you're saying, I did it. I did it. I did it. I did it. I confess. Not unto salvation, but unto restoration. And I will confess that to my brother or my sister or anyone who I can trust, and I'll share that with him. I'm not ashamed because the only thing good in Rob McCoy is Jesus Christ. And if you want to judge me, look out because lightning's going to hit you. And so I'll just tell the adversary, yes, I did that. Yes, I did that. And then you get to the court. And the adversary lays out the case. He just confessed. He did this and this and this and this. And the judge, who happens to be God the Father has the book open with all of my sins listed. And my advocate, my attorney, his son, Jesus, says, yes, you will note that there are dates and times of all the things that the adversary is saying. But as his advocate, I'd like to note that, Father, it's, in, it's not readable because it's covered in my blood. Yeah. And Father says, case dismissed. <laughs> and the adversary's like, dang it. <laughs> yeah, clap for that one. God is for you. Who and what can be against you? Nothing. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Add anything you want. You know why they put all those there? Because if you're really doing what God's called you to do, those are in your future. Oh, I don't know that I really want to sign up for that. I've been living my Christian life. I've never faced any of that. You're rubbing the cat the wrong way. (laughs) The verse goes on to say, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
I was burdened these last two weeks. Three, actually. I think about a group of Americans who are probably the most underappreciated and overlooked servants in the history of my lifetime. My father came back from Vietnam. I remember going through Lindbergh Field as a little boy. And I remember they spit on him. I remember being at the Washington Monument and they were throwing stuff at us. And my dad put me behind him during the war riots, the war protests. I look at 2018 and this is a walk in the park. And they ended up getting honored. But there's a group of veterans that have just been dumped on. And this week I was sickened. Last three weeks, sickened. When I think of someone who sets their face like a flint to accomplish a task, I see this picture. When our soldiers came back from World War II, they were met with parades and people cheering in the streets. And then this happened. From 1950 to 1953, it was the Forgotten War, Korea. Our military spending had dropped, and I'm going to show you in a moment a video, and I'll close with it. But they came back, and there was no fanfare, there were no parades. And the last three weeks, 55 Korean War, uh, U.S. soldiers, their remains came back. Of over 7,000 that have still yet to be found. One network covered it. Why? Politics. Why didn't they have fanfare when they came on one thing? Politics. Their face was set like a flint. They were there, and it almost seemed like, why did we die? My friends are still over there. Families have no closure. They don't even talk about Korean War vets. Most people don't even know what the purpose of the Korean War was. And they still abuse them. 55 came back and nobody covered it save but for one network. 58 seconds. They didn't even cover it. Can we show that video? I want to teach you a little bit about the Korean War. Mention the Korean War today, and most people will look at you with a blank stare. At the time it was fought, just five years after World War II ended, everyone recognized it as a world-shaping conflict, a stark confrontation between the forces of democracy and communism. It began on June 25, 1950, when Soviet-backed communist North Korea crossed the 38th parallel and invaded its U.S.-backed anti-communist South Korean neighbor. Within weeks, the communists had nearly absorbed the entire country. The United States at first was confused over whether it should or even could respond. America had slashed its military budget after the end of World War II and was short both men and equipment. It still had not awakened fully to the expansionist threat of Soviet Russia. The Soviets, buoyed by their own recent development of an atomic bomb and Mao Zedong's communist victory in China, 
sensed America's lack of resolve and encouraged the North's aggression. Yet within weeks, President Harry Truman rushed troops to save the shrinking Allied perimeter at Pusan on the southern tip of the Korean Peninsula. By late September 1950, General Douglas MacArthur had successfully completed the Incheon landings and launched counterattacks. He quickly reclaimed the entire South and sent American-led United Nations forces far into North Korea to reunite the entire peninsula, only to be surprised when hundreds of thousands of Chinese Red Army troops crossed the Yellow River at the Chinese border and sent the outnumbered Americans reeling back into South Korea. Thanks to the genius of General Matthew Ridgway, who arrived to assume supreme command in South Korea in December 1950, over the next hundred days, U.S.-led U.N. forces pushed the communists back across the 38th parallel. The fighting was fierce. Seoul, the capital of South Korea, exchanged hands between communists and U.S.-led forces five times before it was finally secured. During the years 1952 and 1953, the war grew static. Neither side able to deliver a knockout blow. Eventually, the conflict ended with a tense armistice in July 1953. For over the next 60 years, a Cold War persisted between the Stalinist North and what by the 1980s had evolved into the democratic economic powerhouse of South Korea. Over 35,000 Americans died in the Korean War. The war marked the first major armed conflict of the nuclear age and one in which the United States had not clearly defeated the enemy and thus not dictated terms of surrender. Was fighting the Korean War and restoring the South without uniting the entire peninsula worth the huge cost in blood and treasure? The natural dividend of saving the South was the evolution of today's democratic and prosperous South Korea that has given its 50 million citizens undreamed of freedom and affluence and has blessed the world with top-flight products from the likes of Hyundai, Kia, LG, and Samsung. South Korea is a model global citizen and a strong ally of the U.S., and stands in sharp contrast to the communist regime in the North that has starved and murdered millions of its own people and caused untold mischief in the world community. Had it not been for U.S. intervention and support to the South, the current monstrous regime in Pyongyang would now rule all of Korea, ensuring its nuclear-armed dictatorship even greater power and resources. The American effort to save South Korea also sent a message to both communist China and the Soviet Union that the free world, under U.S. leadership, would no longer tolerate communist military takeovers of free nations. The resulting deterrence policy helped to keep the communist world from attempting similar surprise attacks on Japan, Taiwan, and Western Europe. Finally, the Korean War awakened the United States to the dangers of disarmament and isolationism and led to the bipartisan foreign policy of containment of global communism that in 1989 finally led to the collapse of the Soviet Union and with it victory in the Cold War. The Korean War was an incomplete American victory in its failure to liberate North Korea and unite the peninsula, but a victory nonetheless and not just from a military perspective, but from a moral one as well. The reason 35,000 Americans died in Korea was to keep at least half the Korean people free. Korea did not have a single material resource that would have benefited America. The Korean War merits more than a blank stare. It deserves to be remembered and studied with pride. I'm Victor Davis Hanson of the Hoover Institution for Prager University.
Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. You you come home to a nation after 35,000 of your fellow Marines and military have died. You come back to a nation that doesn't even recognize you, parade, nothing. They call it the Forgotten War. 7,000 of of your brothers in arms are, are left in the soil of North Korea. You come back and you're trying to make sense of it all. One man in particular came back and started a company, married, raised a family of just strapping young men, worked with heavy equipment and changed the industry pressed in and served the Lord and trusted in the name of the Lord as God and relied upon God. In the midst of confusion, he just set his face like a flint, like any good Marine would. And I I think about how painful it was for him this week to revisit a nation that wouldn't even cover the return of 55 remains of his comrades in arms. And yet every time I look at this man, He has the joy of the Lord. He cares for his wife who's ailing. And he just goes about life every day with his face set like a flint because he trusts in the Lord. I want you to see a Korean War veteran who I am so blessed to call my brother and friend. Bob Wilson, stand up, will you? have any other Korean War vets present? Because this is the next group that is coming off the picture or the pages of history, or going on to the pages of history, I should say. Folks, I, I used Bob as an illustration of the text. You can whine and complain about the injustice Or you can step into the world trusting the Lord and let him use you to transform it. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. And this passage is brought to you by God this day to strengthen you, set your face like a flint, and move forward in the strength of a God who set his face like a flint to deliver you and me from death unto life. There's no challenge out there that we can't overcome because the text clearly declares we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus.